1: Welcome to episode 365 with my guest, Dan Harris. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website. That's no BS. I use it. I created one for my dog pictures and my music, and it's awesome. You can showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products or services of all kinds in just a few clicks. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The show is part interview, part um anonymous uh, confessions filled out, uh, via surveys on the website by, uh, listeners. And, um, and I'm a jackass. Did I mention that? I'm a jackass that used to tell jokes professionally. Uh, and, uh, and now I do the podcast. Who would have, who would have ever thought that, uh, I would, I never imagined a, uh, not doing stand up in, uh, in my life. And I don't miss it. I don't miss being on TV. Uh, and the weird thing is, um, stand up audiences and TV audiences don't miss me either it 's a beautiful pact that we have um, I want to do a couple of surveys. This one is a struggle in a sentence survey, and this is filled out by <laughs> grump grumpolinum mediocritum garbage garbagenesssus garbage. Something, some play on garbage. Um by the way, uh this guy, the name was my favorite Latin philosopher. He uh He used to just sit go walk down by the sea and smell like garbage and uh <laughs> and be grumpy and snap at people in their togas. I don't know. I like how I'm mixing up the Greeks and the uh, and um what would it be, the Romans? Isn't that what the where Latin comes from? Ugh, I'm digging a hole. <laughs> what are we two minutes and 40 seconds in and I am down the fucking rabbit hole? All right, this is filled out by uh, that the lady who's calling herself that crazy name. About her PTSD, she writes, uh, oh, I love this one, I will relax when I die. Uh, that's what our brain tells us. But you, people can and do heal from PTSD. It um, takes a lot of work. This is filled out by Cupcake. And uh, she struggles with um, anxiety. And she gives us a snapshot from her life. She writes, I'm going on a ski vacation. It's actually more of a question. I'm going on a ski vacation next week. I've never been or actually ever seen snow in my life So needless to say, I'm super stoked. My anxiety is so stupid that I'm not scared of an avalanche, breaking my leg, the plane crashing on the way there, etc. I'm actually scared of riding in the car with my husband's family when we get there. Cars are triggers for me as my first panic attack at 23 was in a car that I was a passenger in. I feel trapped, scared of puking, scared of making a fool out of myself in front of my in-laws. Any advice? And I'm so glad that you, there goes my tooth doing that whistling thing, I'm so dreading going to the orthodontist to get that looked at. Uh, I'm so glad that you asked this question um, because I imagine it's one that a lot of people relate to and, and it's the question of is it safe? To um, share with people what's going on with me, and that—that that was the first question that I thought. Well, if you feel safe around these people, you know, maybe run it by your um, your boyfriend, and or is it your husband? Yeah, your husband. Um, ask him what he thinks of you sharing this with your. With his family. And, you know, they don't have to know all the details of it, but if they're even the slightest bit emotionally educated, they will understand that this isn't somebody being, you know, a prima donna. This is a real physical thing. And then that gives not only them a chance to support you, but it gives them a chance to show love. For you which makes them feel good and makes you feel good and it's a win-win all around but it all depends on what his family is like and um what you want to do uh maybe you'd rather tough it out but the other thought i had is um wear headphones with some soothing music or um, maybe a podcast maybe you listen to a couple of podcasts i don't know which one i'm suggesting but uh couple come to mind. Mental illness, happy hour. Right now I'm going, everybody with misophonia just recoiled at that noise I made with my mouth. So that's my thought uh, on that. Or uh, just tough it out and uh, get a little handheld DVD player and watch the movie Seven and vomit. Either of those two things, I think, would be would be perfect. And deep breathing always helps. And remember, a panic attack will not kill you. It may feel like you're dying, but it will not kill you. So I've been told by a guy that died and who looked very stressed out at the end. <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, I hey, hate when I have to add. I'm kidding. As a comedian, that is such a a oh, that is such a a sign of fear. Okay, Uh, this is filled out by Robin P., and she writes about her depression, like a dull heaviness in my head, a never-ending feeling of irritation, like watching sucky movie previews, things I have to do that day, and endlessly clicking next. So relate to that, Uh, about her love addiction, like jumping from one sinking ship to another, over and over again, running away from the sinking, but never fully escaping. Oh, those are so good, thank you. Uh, Just an anxious little bird writes about her depression. God, can't I just take a nine-hour nap twice a day without everyone fucking bugging me about it? (laughs) Oh, you're my new best friend. Uh, about her anxiety? It's like there's a gaping hole in my chest between my ribs and belly button. It's home to an entire hive of bees, and they live in my blood and my brain. Sometimes they calm down enough to let me live, but most days they're angry and buzzing for hours. And about uh, cutting. Um, and then a parenthesis she puts, in relation to the anxiety. I haven't since I was 17, but it's the only surefire way to let those bees out. They itch, and all I want is to make them quiet. But I have to deal, because cutting is bad. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <laughs> Colonel Poopington III. Uh, I did not care for C- Colonel Poopington II. Uh and they say that uh, <laughs> <I don't know. sighs> something skips a generation. I blanked on what it should be. Uh, she writes about her anxiety. Not sure if I'm paralyzed by fear or just lazy. I think if there that might be the most common fear or thought. Those of us that struggle with depression uh, or anxiety think to ourselves. Uh, about her sex addiction I have to prove to myself that I am as disgusting as I feel inside Um, any comments to make the podcast better eat more ice cream you are behind on your schedule mister last night uh, the last couple of nights I've gone to bed without eating the ice cream I lay awake I I always feel super confident for the first half hour I'm trying to fall asleep. And I'm tired at that point. And then I find just like an hour in, I give in and I get up because I can't sleep. And I eat, my favorite go-to is, uh, Ben and Jerry's has this uh, Americone Dream, which is um, fudge-covered pieces of waffle cone. And, um, it's in vanilla ice cream and then there's swirls of, uh, caramel in there. And last night, I hit a, I don't, I don't know what to call it, a caramel deposit, a caramel vein that was so glorious. I think I got high. I, I almost wanted to like to scream out loud. It, it was like somebody who was somebody at Ben and Jerry's who, who, who was running the, the caramel lever fell asleep on it. Oh. And there was actually some caramel miners in there. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever looked closely at your ice cream, but there are little tiny miners looking for the good uh, the good mix-ins on ice cream. And they're all diabetic, which, of course, makes sense. Diabetes for uh, dessert workers is uh, kind of like iron lung for, for... Oh, shut up. Jade writes about her depression, like I'm feeling everything and nothing all at once. I think somebody else said that also uh, a while back and uh, what I'm doing is I'm calling you a copycat. No, that, that is, that's one of the most apt descriptions of depression um, about her love addiction. Please love me so I don't have to love myself. Thank you for that. Moroccan Lunatic writes about... Uh, her depression just one more smile and they won't notice Ah, the smiling when you're depressed like benching 500 pounds about her sex addiction sex is a way of self-harm sometimes sometimes I enjoy it uh, about codependency I need you please go away about experiencing racial or cultur- or cultural bias I live in a third world country nobody considers anxiety attacks a real problem uh, about our anger issues, I get mad at myself for getting mad at people. Your your mean DJ voice is brilliant. I mean, that's taken it to another level. Getting mad at yourself for getting mad at people—that's uh, that's some ninja. That's some ninja shit. Your uh, the mean part of your brain is playing on you, Captain Tuttle shares about her anorexia, a judgmental friend who I still long for sometimes because at the time, she was the only one who understood me. Now, I don't know what it's like to experience anorexia, but I have the feeling that is, have a lot of people listening to this that have battled that or are battling that are nodding their heads and saying, oh my God, yes. Uh, About love addiction, please distract me from what's really going on. Um. Thank you, thank you, guys. This is filled out by June Rat, and uh, they're non-binary. And June Rat writes uh, about their derm- dermatillomania. I find myself engrossed in a mirror for hours at a time, and snap out of it, red, raw, and bleeding about uh, having borderline personality disorder. I am the sole victim of this world and everyone owes me, but I'm also a piece of shit that deserves nothing. Uh, There are so many... uh, What what do you guys... The word is an oxymoron, but... um, Ooh, a plane. Late night plane. Uh, Paradoxes is the word I was looking for in uh, mental illness. Phil... That's, you know, Phil is a nice name. It's just, it gets right to the point. There's no, you know, fucking around with syllables and different to pronounce. Phil Phil is like a good name because you could say it as, as somebody's hitting you in the stomach and you wouldn't even fuck it up. Phil! Phil! I'm really regretting doing that and feeling very exposed, very vulnerable, feeling stupid judging myself, and uh, that's how I make it about me. Phil describes his anxiety, constant obsession with the future, petrified of getting older and being a loser. God, somebody... It would be great to have an artist (laughs) do portraits of everybody's fear of themselves in the last years of their life. Oh my God, would I love a book of that. Somebody needs to write down all the ideas that uh, I say when I'm doing the podcast and then I never write them down because some are good. Um, Snapshot from Phil's Life. It's 1130 where I am now. I've been flipping through my phone and websites for the past five hours purely to distract myself from my negative thoughts. Not even really reading anything, just changing screens. I haven't eaten anything because my stomach is in knots. When the pain gets so bad, I call my parents and tell them I don't want to live. I cry. It's so humiliating because I'm 31 years old. I've been doing this for about 10 years. They are supportive and loving. I am generally not someone who craves attention. I don't know why I do this to them or to myself. It doesn't make me feel better and it worries them. Phil, you are not doing that for attention. You know, talking too long while making a wedding toast is doing something for attention. You know, buying an obnoxious orange sports car is doing something for attention being a stand-up comedian or starting a podcast is doing something for attention you are in pain and you deserve compassion and comfort and especially the fact that you've been suffering for 10 years with this please go see a, a mental health professional a therapist or a doctor um, this is not a, a, a you being a whiner or weak. You're experiencing pain. It breaks my heart when um, people deny themselves. Like just the like. If if this was your child, Phil, saying these things to you, what would you say to that kid? Quit being a baby. No, you'd say we're gonna. We're going to try to find out how we can make this better. And then you you do everything in your power to try to find something to manage it or help it or at least to just get your feet moving so you don't feel trapped and stuck. This is filled out by What a Cruel World, Let's Toss Ourselves into the Abyss. Um, And she writes about her dissociation, uh, It feels like the worst fucking autopilot ever. I had a friend over recently, a rare occurrence, and while I tried to maintain eye contact with her, I couldn't help but dissociate. Dissociation is supposed to be a coping mechanism to protect me from trauma, but there I was, trying to listen to a friend, probably looking like a freak, trying to bring my consciousness back into my own body as I completely missed half the things she said. Thank you for that. That, um... That has to be really hard. I tune people out just because I'm an asshole, but you have a reason. Logan writes about his depression. I have a pretty good day and then I extend myself beyond my coping resources and I hear that movie trailer voice just when you thought it was safe. That's a great one. Uh, Ike shares about his bipolar. It's like being dragged to a month-long outdoor music festival with 200,000 attendees, and you don't want to be there. I think I could safely say that about any music thing with 200,000 people. Um, About his anxiety. Like, the engine is revving at maximum RPMs, but the car is in neutral. Oh, that is a great one. Any comments to make the podcast better? Uh... Get a new dog, Herbert II Electric Boogaloo. Uh, for our new listeners, Herbert was my uh, my exes and my dog that uh, passed away. And I hate that term, passed away. Died. He he bit it. He ate it. He bit the ultimate treat. He died in May of uh, of last year. And I'm still in fucking pain about it. I cried so hard two nights ago. I was watching a movie and I don't know if it just brought up the feelings of, of sadness that were already there, but, um, I just started thinking about him. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned in all the support groups and therapy and all that other stuff that I, that I do is you got to face the pain sometimes. It's, it, it's going to come out one way or another, either drinking or, you know, pornography or yelling at somebody on the, on the freeway. So you might as well sit and feel it and let the steam out that way. And so I just thought of thoughts of Herbert that made me as sad as possible. So I could just try to get deep into that. And, and at some point I just started howling. I'm so sorry I failed you. Cause it, I could have been on his, his, cleaning thing a little more than I was. And so the mean part of my brain will tell me, well, he died an early death because uh, of the plaque in his heart. It's so why he had a heart problem. Uh, you're so selfish that uh, you put this dog through, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And, and at some point I, and I was, t- I was talking to him while I'm crying and and all the things i was saying to him i suddenly realized and this isn't the first time this has happened i realized that i was talking to little me the little me that i wished that i could rescue bring back you know that that innocence and then it's like the tears went into turbo but it was good because it was, I was, I was embracing it. I was walking into it. And I I kid you not, probably lasted about 25 minutes. And when I was done, there was a literal puddle of tears. I almost took a picture of it, but I thought people might think that's jizz. Um, It was good. I felt lighter. And I still ate ice cream two hours later. Listen, if you don't want to wind up as crazy as me, start getting help. And I have a great place to go. Betterhelp.com. That's right. I use them. And actually, they do. They do help. My my therapist, Donna, is awesome. And uh, I've been seeing her for over a year. And it's I was... I didn't know what to think about online therapy because uh, all I'd ever done was in-person therapy. And uh, before I took him on as a sponsor, I said, well, let me try it and see if I like it. And it's something I would recommend. And I did. And I instantly uh, instantly liked it. And it's super simple. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part because uh, then they'll know you're coming from the podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you. You need to be over 18. And one of the things I like about it too is you can uh, connect with your therapist throughout the week uh, more than just that one time. And you can do it through a variety of mediums. You can do it through live text, um, uh, online chat, email, uh, phone, uh, pass-by helicopter, uh, uh, southeast asian uh motorcycle you can I'm, I'm, I'm out of i'm out of riffs but check it out I highly recommend it Three more quick surveys and then we're going to get to the interview with uh with Dan. This is filled out by vanilla who is uh a fourteen year old girl and this is from the shame and secret survey and i just wanted to read a portion of it and to the question have you ever been physically or emotionally abused uh, she writes not sure there's not really any emotional abuse but more of a lack of emotions in general i can't talk about my feelings with my family and i feel no emotion at all except annoyance towards them my dad never talks to me my mom called me fat and her ugliest daughter that is absolutely emotional abuse and neglect and if a child protective services person heard that they would come investigate because that is fucked up that is an awful thing to say to your child um and she also says i'm not allowed to close my bedroom door even when getting changed that that's super fucked up um I fantasize about being born into a loving family who actually enjoy their time together. You deserve love and you deserve to be protected. And I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I just want you to know that what you're experiencing is abuse and you deserve better and you're not making too big of a deal of it. Um, any positive experiences with the abusers? My parents take care of my practical needs, so I'm grateful for them. Their obligation is to take care of your practical needs. That's not doing you a favor. Um, after listening to this podcast, I've learned that I'm lucky to have not been born into a family that physically abuses me. Now, that's not something that I believe I've ever said. That may be you, um, your interpretation of it, that that, that being physically abused is somehow worse than this. Um, because it, it is n- not, uh, most therapists, uh, say that And people who've been both verbally and physically abused say that the verbal abuse leaves the bigger, longer-lasting scars. So all of that is to say, um, give weight to what is happening to you. And um, you're four years away from being able to tell them to uh, fuck off and go live on your own, hopefully. But until then... Uh, I encourage you to find somebody who's safe to open up to about this counselor, another friend, uh, another parent. This is a happy moment filled out by Liv, and uh, she writes, Today I was at work and was stopped by one of my co-workers. She asked me how I was, and I decided to open up about my anxiety, to which she told me she suffered from the same. She told me her story and told me she was molested when she was young and that she is struggling with her meds, as am I. And she said that if I ever needed someone to talk to, she understands and she's there for me. It made me feel so much better and it made me feel like I wasn't so alone and isolated after all. You have no idea how much I fucking love that. That is... how much better the world would be If we just started with that one tiny thing. Uh, And then finally, this is filled out by... Oh, did I... Oh, this is the name that uh, she used. Not relevant at all, but I feel like I might have explosive diarrhea pretty soon, and I'm in public. Hashtag pray for my bowels. And she... She struggles with depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, uh, being a sex crime victim, and living with an abuser. And about her dissociation, uh, she writes, Dissociating is like standing in a room full of mirrors and not knowing which one is the real you. It's like watching yourself through the keyhole of an antique door, never being able to enter. Or like being gagged and bound and watching as some stranger moves your body around for you. At times it's safety, a warm blanket, a comforting hug, a whisper saying, shh, everything will be okay. At other times it's an accidentally pressed eject button when your plane was in perfect condition. It's a mental prison, a plexiglass cage. It's unpredictable. One moment you are here and alert and the next moment you've been vortexed out of your body by some strange force because someone made a micro expression that vaguely reminded your subconscious of a time when you had to dis- you had to dissociate for your well-being it's frustrating yet at the same time it's the safest place i've ever known there's a part of me inside that i don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me I'm here with uh, Dan Harris, who is uh, an ABC News correspondent. He's a co-anchor of Nightline. He's the weekend – or the anchor of Nightline. Co-anchor. Co-anchor of Nightline, co-anchor of uh, the weekend edition of uh, Good Morning America. Uh, And he has written a couple of books, uh, one called 10% Happier. And what's the – the the one with the big title is – Shit, I don't even remember, but it was like... I got it uh, written down. (laughs) It's such a great title. When I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, he would be a great guest. 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Really Works, A True Story. Um, And then you have another book out about... um, Meditation. Yeah,
0: that's the new one. It's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Yeah, which uh, the title
1: of both the books are uh, so spot on in tone of what I think people need to not roll their eyes. Thank you. And get into some type of inner work. That's you state
0: my goal with complete accuracy is to get people to do this thing and make it accessible and attractive and not
1: off putting the way it's usually presented. Yeah. Um a lot of this started for you when you had an on-air panic attack yeah. in 2004 while well, uh anchoring um what which show was it? A little show we do called Good Morning America. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, w- was that uh on a weekend or weekday? No, oh, it was a weekday. So That's what I the thought. big show, yeah. yeah. Yes. And um I watched it and it's, uh, you would know that something was wrong if I hadn't known that you had had a panic attack. I might have thought it oh, was got the flu or something, but it's very obvious. You start running out of breath. Yeah. Um, you look a little dizzy. Um, you, you, uh, stumble through the, the words. Let's go back to that day. Talk about the headspace you were in. Before you went on air the headspace you were in when it happened and then afterwards so
0: I was my job that day was to this was back when there used to be a position on the morning newscast called news reader they've sort of phased it out but it was the person that would
1: come on at the
0: top of each hour and read the headlines so
1: is this the guy that would go to the center of the town square and then yell yell it out are you talking further than that
0: Uh, further into the future further into the future yes yes this was more like uh, you know started in the 70s 80s 90s and then by the 2000s uh, it was a a big job now it is less of a job so Town Crier would have been the precursor yes Yes. that was
1: my lame attempt at humor no no no, no, I got you I was with you
0: I was with you it was probably my lame parlay of, of the humor um so anyway, I had I was filling in that morning. I'd done the job before. I was filling in for a woman named Robin Roberts, who's now the the host of mm-hmm. Good Morning America. And uh, the job is to come on, and you're, you got teleprompter there, and you read like five or six voiceovers. Um, there, you know that you they you are seen a little bit on camera, and then they roll some video of whatever you're talking about. And uh, just a couple seconds into my shtick, I just I got hit by this big wave of fear. I my heart was racing, my my palms sweating, my mouth dried up, my lungs seized up. That was the biggest problem. I couldn't talk, and uh, I had to quit right in the middle of my thing. And um, and to toss it back, I kind of squeaked out a back to you to the main hosts of the show. And uh, I knew exactly what had happened. Uh, the people in the studio and in the control room expressed a lot of concern. What's wrong? Are you okay? And I lied to them and said, I, it's nothing. It's no big deal. And I was able to come on the air another at the the second hour of the show at 8 o'clock and do my job, and it was fine. So in a way, I got away with it, in part also because what you said, that that mm-hmm. um, if you look at it, it looks like I I get lost and I screw up, but it's not obvious that it's a panic attack, no. per se. Um And part of that, I think, is that I'm, you know, I had a long history of being on TV, a reasonably good poker face, and or I'm a sociopath, who knows, (laughs) but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't read as a full on panic attack, which it was.
1: Uh, Although I have the feeling people who have
0: experienced panic attacks, they know exactly what they know. Yes. And my mother, who was watching, knew exactly what it was. Interestingly, because
1: you had had panic attacks before
0: I just called her up. She was like, you had I called her. I went backstage immediately after it happened. I called my mother. She's like, she said I was watching. That was a panic attack.
1: Well, she's a doctor. Is that is Is that that, did that help her in knowing it? No,
0: she's a pathologist. So she's not dealing with um, live human beings. Um, She's not Quincy, is she? No, although um, it wasn't Quincy. Was that that doctor was based in Boston, right? My mother's based I don't in Boston. Remember. I don't well, there's a Quincy outside of Boston. Yeah. Anyway, and your dad's a doctor too. But, and my wife, yes, yeah. uh, and sure. your wife. Yes. I'm a, as a, it's useful as a hypochondriac to be surrounded by <laughs> physicians. So my mom, knew, I don't know, it was mother's intuition, I guess. And um, so more embarrassing than the the panic attack because you asked me about my mind state going into it yep. was um, was what produced it. I think you know I, I had spent a lot of time in war zones as an ambitious and idealistic reporter after 9-11. So after 9-11, I went to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and then I covered the second Intifada in Israel back in 2002. So I was in Gaza, the West Bank, Israel, a bunch, and then... Is
1: that the one that was ignited when Sharon went to the... Yes, uh, Temple Mount. Temple
0: Mount. That's exactly Very, uh, right. you have a good memory. Yeah. That, that was the one. Uh, it was very... It was really nasty. Yeah. And, uh, and then I was in Iraq a, a lot. And I, when I came home from one very long run in Iraq, like probably a six-month-long stint, so I came home in the summer of 2003, I got depressed. Yeah. Uh, so it was... Um, I didn't. The problem was I didn't know I was depressed. I, my body knew I was depressed. I felt like I had a fever and I, I was having trouble getting out of bed. But I didn't actually consciously know mm-hmm. I was depressed. And so I did this incredibly dumb thing, which is I started to self-medicate with cocaine and ecstasy. Neither of which I'd ever used. I'd never done any hard drugs before. Um, and even though I wasn't doing it all the time, you know, I, I often joke, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, where they're pounding Quaaludes every five minutes. <laughs> I was not like that. I was pretty, my drug use was pretty intermittent. But then I went to a doctor, an expert in panic, and he asked me a bunch of questions to try to figure out what was wrong. And one of the questions was, do you do drugs? And I said, yeah. And he leaned back in his chair and gave me one of those shrinky looks that communicated, um, the sentiment of, okay, asshole, mystery solved. And he said, look, even though you've only been doing this once in a while, it's enough to artificially raise the level of adrenaline in your brain, which will compound your baseline anxiety and make you much more likely to have panic attacks. So.
1: And did he even know that you had served, uh, as a war correspondent? Uh,
0: I think that came out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that came out. But you know, to be honest with you, It's an interesting psychology, because I don't think that my time in war zones was traumatic. I think the problem was that I liked it too much. The adrenaline. Yeah. I got addicted to the adrenaline. And when I came home, the the depression was not trauma. The depression was withdrawal. And I'd never experienced a thrill like being in a war zone. There's, There's an expression, there's nothing more thrilling than the bullet that misses you. And for me, they all, I was lucky enough that they all missed. Not true for many of my friends, um, but I, I just, you know, the, I love journalism. So you take journalism and then you put it in a place where there's live fire and it's the most important story in the world, and you're getting on television. And I was young. I was in my early 30s. It was all so heady.
1: Yeah, and, and that voice in your head, I would imagine, that occasionally says, oh, my God, another fluff piece. You're not doing no. that you're you're achieving your
0: dream there's no existential crisis there's no question of does what i'm doing matter right. it to- totally matters you know if you recall uh, the war in afghanistan
1: the war in iraq there was it was all anybody was talking about for months and it was early it started in march of 03 and this was the summer of 03 that you came yes, in, right
0: so but i covered the pre invasion i went to iraq in december before the invasion i covered all the whole build up invasion post invasion uh, insurgency came that was my first trip came home that was when the depression happened I ended up going back five times uh, after that but I had by this time well let's just think I didn't actually quit doing drugs until 2005 so a lot of the times that I went back I, I, I was at that point not only covering wars but also using drugs Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's a, quite a cocktail
1: it's interesting too because there's a there's a um a similarity between withdrawing from um, por- addictive pornography use and the same thing, because um, to people who, for people who don't understand sex addiction, there's there's kind of healthy sex, and then there's the sex that you're looking for—the charge, the mm. adrenaline, the—I um, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but um, there's a hangover mm. after long stretches of of looking at pornography and uh it, it it's depression it's not wanting to get out of bed mm. it's everything uh, has lost its sheen the things that normally bring you pleasure you look at like how did i ever find pleasure in that
0: i think that's a, a legit comp because you basically fritz out the parts of your brain that are associated with pleasure and uh, you know you're it's, it's hard to know what to you know how to how to stimulate it again, and I found that cocaine worked really well, and and uh,
1: ecstasy you were doing as yes, well, correct? Yeah, I yeah. mean, and boy, you talk about one that uh, withdraws a huge amount from oh. your bank account, and then you're left the next. And I don't mean literally, but I mean figuratively. You're the chemicals in your brain. The the next day depression. I understand. I've, I've never tried ecstasy, but I understand the the depression uh, when it wears off can be really it's bleak bleak yeah it's yeah. super bleak yeah.
0: and i had i will say since i was inter- interviewing this woman oh she, i was being interviewed recently by a woman named anna marie cox i don't know if you've ever heard of her she is, sounds really familiar she's a journalist and she's got a podcast called with friends like these and then also she's also she's part of the whole crooked media empire oh, right, uh, right. The, the, and then they do a podcast called crooked conversations so she had me on to talk about meditation and blah 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 and. She pointed out that in terms of mental illness, I am uh, a rookie, Um, but she has dealt with bipolar uh, and also had to go to rehab for uh, serious alcoholism. And so I don't want to overstate my cred here, but um, I've dealt with depression and anxiety episodically since I was a boy, Uh, never had to be institutionalized or anything like that. But... Uh, the depression you feel after coming off of ecstasy is deep, really deep. Can be for, not for everybody, but for me, for somebody who's prone to depression, it just puts you right back in the space.
1: And, and drugs don't hit every person the same way. So, you know, one person may be shooting out a huge amount of dopamine and all the other stuff that makes us feel good. Um, giving them an even bigger withdrawal mm-hmm. the the next day. Mm-hmm. Um But ultimately, you know, to me, it's about, uh, it's about how do we lead an authentic life where we feel peace, we feel meaning and we're dealing with whatever we have control over. We're trying to, do in a principled way and whatever we don't have control over, we're accepting, Uh, not approving, but accepting. So whether or not it's a lifelong history of it or it's dramatic or not dramatic, um, I think they're all equally important. Uh, The one thing I've seen doing this podcast is almost all of us minimize our experiences either Mm. because we don't want to be called an exaggerator or we don't want to deal with it or whatever reason. But it it is – there's enough hurdles in trying to lead a healthy, authentic life. Putting that one of minimizing it is really adding to it. And it's the first one because if you minimize it, who's going to go get help if you're like, it's not a big deal?
0: Right. Well, that's astute. Um, that's a very interesting observation. Luckily, in my case, I have – gone and gotten help uh every time i've needed it i think mm-hmm. um but i think what you're saying makes a lot of a, a lot of sense and i see in what i just said the i do it all the urge time. to minimize yes yeah. i do it too uh, although having said that I mean, i've mean i listened to you know when you read the surveys mm-hmm. you know those are people are not minimizing and so i, I just wanted to be uh it's, it's just important to me to be clear Mm-hmm. that there's a there are gradations here,
1: yes, yes inexperience, in but ultimately um the feelings that are left in its wake um are what's important, yeah, and dealing with those and giving yeah. and giving weight to those yeah. um because it's not a competition of what gave us p t s d or depression, no you know, or who touched us or what their intent was, or right. is it prosecutable that you know it's just about what's left in its wake and how Mm -hmm. do we, how do we lead functioning lives so that we're, we're not depressed when we wake up and realize we're still alive Mm -hmm. and we have another day to live. Mm -hmm. You know, I've lived like that and that's, it's no way to live. No, it's no way to live. Um, any moments from childhood adolescence, uh, that kind of, um, paint a picture for us? Uh, you mentioned some depression and some anxiety. um, and also, you've mentioned workaholism in mm-hmm. uh, an interview I, I heard. Um, was workaholism kind of a, a thing in your family with two high-achieving parents?
0: Uh, I don't think my parents were work They worked really hard, mm-hmm. but I don't. I never got the vibe of workaholism. To um, they loved and love what they, my mother's still working, my father's not working. There was. I got this, they set a really healthy example in that they just loved what they were doing. My dad treated patients as a breast cancer physician. My mother uh, was really sort of, uh, into. she would look at slides and be, be able to diagnose complex uh, forms of lymphoma just mm-hmm. by looking at it. Uh, and they just really, they would sit around and talk about it all the time. But I didn't get off of them. They weren't like sweaty about it. Okay. Whereas I, I think I entered into a, a business where that kind of naked ambition was much more um, widespread, let's just say, although academic medicine can also have plenty of uh, naked ambition. But to answer the
1: first question... uh, Any moments that you think are emblematic of your experience as a child, not necessarily to point fingers at other people, but your view of yourself, your view of the world, maybe... um, a moment or moments that where you experienced something that might have informed who you are or how you view the world
0: my first big taste of depression and, and this was a pretty de- debilitating depression was um, I don't remember my age I could calculate it because it was right around the time of the movie the day after tomorrow came on about nuclear war mm-hmm. I don't remember that in the 80s vaguely I do so I went through a period I was just paralyzed by fear of nuclear war when I was you know, probably south of 10 Somewhere in there, um, and uh, had to go to a child psychiatrist, William Beardsley. I remember his name. Uh, he did. He sounds
1: s- like a psychiatrist. Yes, he doesn't does, he?
0: doesn't he? Yeah. All I remember is drawing pictures and playing soccer with him. Uh, but he did a seminal study at Harvard about the effects of the cold war on children and the new nu- really yes the um the, the hiding effects.
1: under the desk drill and all that other stuff
0: yeah but it was a little bit later than that because by the time i was a kid that we weren't doing the hiding under the desk drill but you know the cold war was on in the headlines all the time and i you know i somehow i just i could stop being able to function for a while i don't know how bad it got in terms of mm-hmm. Uh, my day-to-day demeanor, but I was terrified. I do remember that and ended up having to go see this doctor. that was my first big taste of, you know, real blues.
1: Were you able to express it to your parents or did they pick up on it? I expressed it to my parents, yes. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you remember what you said to them?
0: I have this vague memory of... I think we were like on vacation on Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard or something like that. And I I might be conflating two events, but I remember being playing with a friend in the basement or playing with my brother or somebody and just being struck by the realization that we're all going to die. Um, And going upstairs and like weeping to them. I have a few memories of just weeping to my parents past the point where the weeping, you know, like I have a three-year-old who weeps all the time. This was a little bit older where it was a little bit more unusual, either from homesickness at camp uh, or... this big uh, nuclear holocaust jag that I was on. Um, but yeah, my parents were ex hippies, very sensitive, very loving. So
1: yeah. The fact that you felt comfortable enough to go to that oh, speaks yes, yes. volumes. Yeah. My parents were and are pretty great. Uh, any other snapshots from childhood or adolescence?
0: Uh, well, there's the, the homesickness thing at camp and, um, and and it's interesting to this day there's a kind of summer weather that will throw me into a temporary depression
1: there's something about the summer i totally get that there's certain smells yes um sometimes it's high humidity especially after it's rained Yes. And the smell of pavement yes yeah yes i get that
0: and i don't know what it is it will just break even if it, I'll tell you what's useful about meditation is that you you really are able. It helps me depersonalize interior phenomena and exterior phenomena, but in particular interior phenomena, so that the taste of depression can arise. But I'm I don't glom onto it, claim it, own it, um, and drown in it the way I used to. I can kind of see it and let it pass on my good days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can still see it come up, and there's something about that summer weather because i when I was younger, for some reason, the summer is when I would kick in the depression
1: yeah that 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 smell that feeling, um I just want as cheesy as this sounds, I just want to be held by a woman <laughs> and, and and there's something about me that feels so alone and abandoned in those moments, so I get it, I get that uh it's visceral,
0: yes. Yes. Yep. Here's another one. A little bit older. Graduation from college sent me into arguably um, among the deepest of the depressions that I've experienced where it just, as you described before, everything loses its sheen. It looks Everything looked gray to me. I had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I hadn't prepared for it. And nobody had really helped me prepare for, you know, I was looking down the barrel at the rest of my life and i had no plan and that took me months to get over months that's a big one it is a big one what
1: were what were some of the things if you can remember your head was telling you or it still tells you
0: there's a great word i love um I love it tells you so much about a culture the words they come up with Isn't so like it? the yeah. fact that the Germans came up with Schadenfreude, Schadenfreude. I mean it just tells you a lot yeah. um, the Buddhists came up with a word propuncha which is a word it's not going to be a familiar word to most of your listeners but the phenomenon will be absolutely familiar and in English it will require several sentences to describe it but the Buddhists have one word it's when A data point arises in the current moment, something happens, and you immediately paint, you make a mental movie about the whole future. So, like, you stub your toe, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to go play baseball tomorrow, I'm going to get over, I'm going to become overweight, my life's going to end, I'm going to live under a bridge. Boom, like that. That's just the way the mind works. I think I was going through robust rounds of propuncha about not having a future, just envisioning myself with nothing to do ever based on the fact that i didn't have anything to do right now. so that that's just a that's just a classic description of anxiety, you know, worrying about the future. Yeah. and that's what i was in. but in anxiety in my experience of anxiety and depression i have never experienced one without the other.
1: yeah, they uh they're the Laverne and Shirley of mental illnesses. Yes. um yeah catastrophizing is uh, I think very similar to the the thing that you were talking about yes. which it has at its heart black and white thinking which is the most corrosive way of looking at our lives it's it's so it's so um can you talk about it black and white thinking it just rules
0: out any subtlety, which is where life actually is, you know with the you um, if you look at the world as either or, as binary in that way, then um, you're missing the entire spectrum in between, which is just uh, just what life consists of um, so it's very hard for me to find anything that is either or in the universe it's pretty, I mean, except for uh, certain um you will die one particles, day
1: particles yes that's uh, what that's, elementary
0: particles right. uh, and yes you will die one day you are either living or dead but in in terms of our felt experience it's pretty
1: much a much more complicated boolean base than either or um, my therapist said to me uh, one day if you find yourself using the words always or never uh, you're usually uh, catastrophizing.
0: Yes. It's also a problem in uh, relationship communication. Uh, and this is not an original thought. This is something that I've heard from uh, folks in the business of uh, helping couples. If you, gener- if you universalize about how you always do this or you never do this, that is
1: to car- make a caricature out of your partner. Yes. And put him on the defensive and then they can't come join you in the middle it's i had an epiphany one one time when i when i was married and i found myself wanting to dominate in a disagreement and afterwards i kind of reflected and i thought how insane is it that you would want one of you to be the victor and the other the vanquished when you are going to be living together after that <laughs> Is is that a statement of how big the ego is and yeah. how blind it is? Yeah,
0: but I do the same thing. Yeah. Still, I mean, even after all this meditation.
1: What do you think that's about?
0: Ego. Absolutely, yeah. you said it. It's you answered your own question. It's about ego and um
1: <laughs> and and power. And and what do you think is underneath? our ego defending us? Because there must be some type of fear that the ego is coming out, right?
0: The ego ego is, uh, in my experience, sort of inextricably intertwined with fear. It's, it's defending. You know, all the wellspring of all of this, again, to use a Buddhist prescription, is the illusion that you are really real, that there is some... Uh, Gil Martin in there, some core nugget of you that you can close your eyes and find. If you close your eyes and look for you, you won't find it. And this concretizing we do around the idea of ourselves is the wellspring of all of our negative emotions. Greed, hatred, confusion about the nature of reality. And uh, it's all, all, I think you could make a pretty good case that much if not all of that is fear-based. More for me give me what I want, protect me from what I don't want.
1: Here's what I think I need to uh, be safe in the world. Um, Kind of not as a in this moment, but uh, like going forward. If if I can have this much amount of money, I can get this amount of recognition, then this voice in my head that tells me I'm fucked is going to get quieter. Of course, that doesn't happen. Right. you know the the nature of
0: the mind is insatiability yeah. you know I mean my meditation teacher likes to ask people how many vacations have you had how many paychecks have you cashed how many lattes have you sipped and are you done of course not we we it's never enough and that is the
1: one of the great tricks of the ego so give me some moments as a um, journalist and a sp- along your way up the ladder to national prominence, some of the things that your inner critic would tell you out of fear, out of naked ambition, um, if you're comfortable.
0: Sure, sure. There's, there's no, nothing off limits. Okay. I, uh, this is a, a slightly off topic, but um, it just came to mind as as, as you started to talk, because we were talking about moments of, where i could remember feeling depression as a kid but there's a really clear memory i have of feeling it as an adult on the job and this should have been a warning sign moment but i didn't take it that way um so before the panic attack and the the big depression that led to that i so in 2002 after the um uh, when I was busy covering the Second Intifada after Sharon's visit to the to Arrow Sharon's visit to the to the Temple Mount, uh, I, was, <clears throat> I was back and forth to between New York and the Middle East a ton. I just was coming back and forth a lot, and I came home from one of the trips and I was experiencing the depression, but I didn't really know it. I was just was cranky at work. I didn't have a lot of energy. Nothing seemed exciting to me. And i was having I was I was kind of having some fights with some of my bosses, and they sent me back and I remember I got off the plane in Tel Aviv I drove to Jerusalem, and then they said you 're going into the West Bank because yasser Arafat 's going to visit what 's the name of the town some town that i can 't remember right now uh, that had been leveled he, and so I, I go. And we sit outside in the heat all day. And the helicopter circles around and never lands. The crowd gets rowdy. I see a guy pull up gun out and shoot another guy. We end up diving in a ditch. <sighs> yeah, crazy day. <clears throat> Afterwards, I get in the car to go back to the studio in Jerusalem to feed our tape back and do a story for that night. And I get in the car. And I'm, by the way, I'd just gotten off the plane. So I was pretty tired. I fall asleep in the car. And I get, we I, f- I wake up because the car has stopped, and we're in the middle of the countryside, still in Palestine at this point, And we're eating, we stopped to eat some fresh watermelon from a farmer on the way back. And I'm standing there in the West Bank looking at this view and eating the watermelon, and I realize I'm not depressed anymore. Wow. And that should have told me what was coming,
1: yeah. and it didn't. Um you know who you should uh interview uh if you haven't already is Laird Hamilton. I know that name. Why he's I know that he's name? the preeminent big wave surfer. Yes. He's the guy yes, that, of that kind yes. of yeah with the strap in. Yeah. yeah. And he's married to Gabby Reese. Yes, they and, do re- retreats. Yes. And she was talking about how after he surfs these gigantic waves, he's depressed for days oh, man. and he's an adrenaline junkie. Yes. But it would be interesting to hear you yes. to sit down and, Absolutely. and talk about that.
0: It's the real deal, man. It is it is something that and I was I didn't uh, I wasn't an adrenaline junkie before covering wars. Um, I, I mean, I loved my job and there's some adrenaline in journalism, but I wasn't ever in like real Danger, but uh, but nine eleven happened, and you know the expression was, "Well, this is going to change everything." I'm not sure it did change everything in our culture, but it changed everything for me. And I spent an enormous amount of time just sort of marinating in these cultures and in these in this kind of work that I had never experienced before. That was so
1: exciting because you uh, wound up traveling <clears> around <throat> the globe and spending a lot of times in conflict zones, <laughs> yeah. in the Middle, yeah. the Middle East. Yeah,
0: I've been all over, and I had not been all over at that point.
1: Um, did you cover suicide bombings? Yes, many. What What is that like? Walk me through getting the call that there's been one arriving. What you witness, what you feel.
0: So the one that comes to mind is Passover 2002, a very famous one. It was in the city of uh, coastal town of Netanya in Israel. Mm-hmm and it was in the height of this aforementioned second intifada and it was uh i remember i was doing a story where i was with a jewish family and passover celebrating passover we were, we were shooting the thing and we get, then we got the word that there had been a big attack in Netanya, and in a hotel at a passover dinner somebody walked in blew himself up and i remember showing up and seeing the image two images that really stick in my head were the windows were blown out, and this coastal breeze had come through, and the uh, drapes were billowing wow. out over uh, out the windows. And then there was a big sheet on the ground when I got there, and that, too, billowed up, and I just saw a row of feet connected to bodies, but they weren't alive. So that, that is a very vi- visceral memory for me. Wow,
1: man, that that um... it's hard to find something to say after that because it's so
0: yeah, it's heavy and. What's interesting is I never, I remember my parents asking me, my friends asking me, aren't you traumatized by what you're seeing? Because there, I have a lot of stories like that. I mean, I actually, frankly, don't think about it that much anymore. And I, I, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it. I felt like, I guess I justified it at the time as, you know, I need to have some distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the doctors in that TV show M.A.S.H., know we're making jokes while treating the patients i need to i need to um be able to function if i if i'm feeling it deeply every time i just i can't do the job i don't know though what was keeping me going you know was it was it just that the adrenaline um and could i do it now now that i now that i have a child and i'm older and uh And have this meditation practice that I think boosts your sensitivity. Um, It's interesting. But I've never felt to this day, even as I tell that story, don't feel traumatized by it. I wonder, though, I really wonder as I'm talking, I haven't thought this through. So you're hearing me. This is not shtick. Um,
1: I just wonder how I would deal with it now. Yeah, that's that. That would be interesting. I'm sure there are studies about the way different people's brains react to adrenaline. And my my hunch would be that for some people, it muddies their thinking. And for other people, it crystallizes their thinking. And I get the feeling that you're one of the people – where it crystallizes, there's think, they're, they're thinking, and there's a calm almost yes. that comes over. Because yes. I'm the I'm the same type of person. I've never felt more in control um, and uh, calm than after an earthquake that mm. almost killed us. I was like, okay, we need to do this, and we're going to. My ex was just like all. You know, running around in a in a tizzy, didn't know what to do. And I was like, for dinner, we're going to have this, and then I'm going to go do that, and we're going to do this, and and it was almost soothing in yeah. a, in a way. Yeah. What do you think that's about? I don't know, but
0: what, I love what you're the way you're describing this because I would say that is the way I felt that um, I wasn't super rattled by what by the pathos of what I was seeing. Now there are moments that come to mind where I was rattled because it was just, it was so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a calm is so funny that you use that word because I think that's right, um, and I think and maybe in some ways it goes back to what I said before that there isn't an existential crisis. Like I, you, you know, what you're doing matters, and um, and it's important. And your job is to get the story out and to tell it as evenly as and factually and and in, and in the most compelling way possible. And that you know, you, I'm really occupied by that. You. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing is you're you're viewing everything through a bit of a there's a bit of a buffer between the the reality that you're absorbing and and you because you are absorbing it in order to tell the story so I'm thinking about okay I have x hours to go until the show airs so i have I've got to get all this down i've got to get all the facts straight in my head I need to write the story I need to feed the video and I'm back timing the whole time There's a lot of mental stuff going on that wouldn't be going on if I would just showed up if I walked my dog and I right. came upon this scene
1: so, so maybe it's reality has sped up to the speed that our anxious brain is usually overheating at. that's an interesting idea yeah that's an interesting and for, idea for once we feel like okay this is yeah my my feeling about the world is real I'm not crazy yeah uh, finally home field advantage yeah
0: <laughs> yeah that's right, because we, we evolved for threat detection. Yeah. People wonder, why do I have this racing mind? We evolved on the Savannah, you know, and the, to, to, like, not have our kids eaten by lions. And so, yeah, maybe there is something about... Uh, maybe there is something oddly peaceful about chaos. Yeah.
1: I saw a guy um, do suicide by cop about two years ago, and I was, I don't know, maybe... 50, 70 yards away and I watched the whole thing unfold and I felt nothing. I felt nothing. And I felt like a terrible person for not feeling anything because other people were visibly upset. And I just thought, what's, what's wrong with me?
0: That's really interesting. You know, one of the things that I have learned through meditation is that the great mystery of consciousness is and one could argue that consciousness is the greatest mystery. Um, we don't we don't know where our thoughts and feelings come from. We don't we don't know they come out of a void. You go looking for your thoughts, the source of your thoughts and feelings. You can't find it, just like you can't find you. Um, and yet, when our thoughts and feelings arise, we tend to take responsibility for them and tell ourselves a whole yes. story about we are this way because of this uninvited thought or feeling. And so you just did that, or you, you two years ago did that. And I'm doing it a little bit about um, the way I did or did not feel traumatized by what I saw in War Zones, but like, you can't be held responsible for what you think or feel, because it, it, it comes out of, a, uh, out of a mysterious void. What you can be held responsible for is how you deal with
1: it. Exactly. I I, I say it all the time on this podcast. There's no unhealthy thought or feeling, just a healthy or unhealthy way of expressing it. So
0: that's a beautiful thing to say. And I think it's very important for people to hear that because we waste a lot of energy. You know, every time we get impatient with our child, sorry, anytime we feel impatient vis-a-vis our child or our spouse or whoever – I'm a horrible parent or I'm a horrible husband. But actually, that, that that you can learn, you can train yourself to let these feelings and thoughts arise and pass without being owned by them.
1: Uh, well, this would be a good segue then to, to talk about how you got into meditation. Um, so after the panic attack, let's let's start there. Um, or do you want to rewind to uh, before that? No, that's cool. Okay. Um, you had the on-air panic attack. Yeah. Uh, what were your thoughts and feelings after that?
0: I was terrified uh i think was a, it was you think a, did you think your career was over that 's right I did because i you know you can 't talk on television it 's hard to be a talking head on television, so it was an it was this was an existential issue. Yes. You know, I, I just didn't I didn't know what I was going to do. So I actually had two. So the uh, I don't usually do it in this much detail when I tell the story, but I had the first panic attack in two thousand four. After which my I t- spoke to my mother on the phone. She hooked me up with a shrink, not the shrink who ultimately diagnosed me with the drug problem, uh, a shrink to whom I did not tell the whole story, who gave me Klonopin uh which you know felt great um but not a
1: long-term cure for something it's like like a crisis uh yes
0: yeah um thing yes but i that's what happened i ended up getting once or i I think i was on a once or twice a day clonopin dose Mm -hmm. which felt amazing until i got acclimated
1: um and then it didn't didn't work anymore. It didn't feel as good.
0: I, it's just I had a steady state, and I didn't really notice it. But oh. it it helped me. It helped me avoid the panic attacks. But I kept doing drugs. In fact, the clonopin was nice. great. With you know, if you do too much cocaine, you take some clonopin. It might take the edge off, help you go to sleep. So it was just the wrong. It was the wrong thing to give me at the time. Since as a friend of mine has joked, uh, I have the soul of a junkie. Uh, so I kept partying had a second panic attack that was much more mild in 2005. On air. On air. And it was after that one that I finally ended up in a shrink's office face-to-face with it, somebody who was great. And I still see this guy. He was the one who f- figured out that it was the drugs. I quit doing drugs that day. And because that's not an easy thing to do, I ended up seeing him once or twice a week for a long
1: time. Uh, Did you go through withdrawal from the clonopin?
0: Uh, no, I kept he kept me on the clonopin. Oh, okay. Um, and then added in Zoloft, gotcha. which actually has a really great sort of anti panic. Uh, um, it has it can help you with panic apparently. Right. So, and then he gave me beta blockers as well, which are really good for. They're non narcotic, but they're right. really good for blocking the physiological uh, aspects of panic. So I was, I was. There was a whole pharma. Copia there. And uh, And are
1: you still taking the Clonopin?
0: No. Okay. I I actually have a, he lets me have a jar of it. Mm -hmm. Um, If I have trouble sleeping, I can take one. But obviously, I have really deep propensity to abuse drugs, so Mm -hmm. I have to be very careful. Gotcha. But actually, it's it's not been a problem. Um, uh, So uh, I was on the, for a while, I was going to Clonopin, Zoloft, and occasionally beta blockers. Meditation was not even, like, 16th, 17th on the list. I didn't... To the extent that I had even thought about meditation, I thought it was, like, something for people who, you know, live on a Himalayan mountaintop and wear a loincloth. You know, Mm -hmm. just not... I was not interested at all in meditation. And, it frankly, it didn't cross my radar until many years after the panic attack. Uh, Somebody recommended that I read a book by Eckhart Tolle, who we talked about, Um And, uh, do we talk about that before the podcast? I
1: think before we
0: started rolling. Before we started rolling, we started, we talked a little bit about Eckhart Tolle. So years after I had the panic attack, a a colleague of mine recommended I read a book by Eckhart Tolle. And I started to read it. At first, I thought it was just irretrievable bullshit, just filled Mm -hmm. with all this grandiose language and pseudoscientific claims and blah, blah, blah. But he was the first person I ever heard describe the fact that we have a voice in our heads by which... He was not referring to schizophrenia or hearing voices. He's talking about your inner narrator, the voice that chases you out of bed in the morning and is just blah, 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 yammering at you all day long.
1: Turns your fears into uh, truth, paints them as truth.
0: Yes, yes. Has you constantly wanting stuff, not wanting stuff, judging people, judging yourself, comparing yourself to other people. And when you're unaware of this nonstop conversation that you're having with yourself, it owns you. It's why you eat when you're not hungry or you're checking your email in the middle of a conversation with another human being or you lose your temper when it's not doesn't make any sense. And that was really compelling to me. Uh, however, the problem with Eckhart Tolle, in my view, is that he is correct in his description of the human situation, but not particularly useful. And I went and interviewed him and said, okay, man, you got me. The voice in the head. This thing is real. This is, I'd never heard this before. What do you do about it? And he seemed unable or unwilling to give me any advice that made any sense. And I was really kind of at wit's end. And my wife gave me a book by uh, shrink who's a Buddhist in New York City. His name is Dr. Mark Epstein. And in reading this book, I realized that all the stuff that I liked the most from Eckhart Tolle seemed to have been lifted mostly without attribution from some guy named the Buddha uh, who uh, uh, was talking about this stuff 2,600 years before totally, you know, started cashing his royalty checks. And the Buddha had actual advice for dealing with a voice in the head, which was meditation. And even though I didn't want to do it, I started researching it a little bit, and I found that there's uh, really a significant body of scientific research that shows that meditation is really good for it's in its early stages, but I think I think the safe way to say it is it strongly suggests that meditation can really help with anxiety and depression, can literally rewire key parts of your brain, also can help with your blood pressure and your immune system. And when I read that as the child of, a, of scientists and the spouse of a scientist, that and somebody who's dealt with anxiety and depression enough to not want it again, mm. I started to do it. And that, for me, it, you know, put me over the hump. And, and then the practice itself made a significant difference.
1: Uh, and would it be fair to say that for most people uh, who deal with anxiety or depression or substance abuse, that it can help in aid in managing those things, but yeah. not really a catch-all a solution for... No. Okay, I no. just wanted to make that make that clear. Because no,
0: no I, think, I think... You know, it's funny, there was a, uh, some meditation critics... Pointed to a study that was done recently, a meta study, so a study of studies that sort of aggregates all the studies and um, and looks at the conclusions in, in aggregate. Uh, it found that meditation was no more useful than antidepressants, and people are like, "Look, it's no more useful than antidepressants." Damn. Who fucking cares? I mean, antidepressants are great. Do that and meditate. Yes. And, like, get enough sleep and exercise. Do all the things that you know you need to do not to be depressed and put meditation in there, too. So, yes. I, I think silver bullets, there's isn't. There's no such a thing. No.
1: Did not, not, uh, not with mental illness, no. There's no there's, there
0: are no, yeah. s- There's no silver bullets for anything, when it, in my view, like, mm-hmm. when it comes to well-being generally. Yes. All these... Uh, self-help gurus who tell you that you can solve all of your problems through the power of positive thinking. Uh, that industry is an $11 billion a year howling sea of bullshit.
1: I couldn't and, agree more.
0: And, and so that's my uh, – so, so, so yeah, I, you're, I could see a little nervousness when you heard me talking about uh, meditation as something that can work with depression and anxiety. Yeah, no, I am not presenting this as a as a panacea. What That's why I like the, the title to of your it. book,
1: which is said ten percent happier, yes, which yes. I think is a realistic thing to reach for. Sure. Well, if you do, you know, ten things that help ten percent, hey, before you know it, you're getting out of bed and you're looking forward to your day. And Absolutely. for me, that there are about ten things that that I have to do every day if mm-hmm. I if I want to uh so for you, what are, what are some of the, the things? Uh, meditation, obviously.
0: My, I remember uh, my doctor saying that somebody like me with tendency toward depression and anxiety, panic attacks, substance abuse, that he used an animal analogy when he was talking about how I need to take care of myself. And years later, I went back to him and I said, remember that time you told me I need to treat myself like a stallion? He said, no, no, no. I said thoroughbred. I, of course, <laughs> heard Stallion. But the the, the point holds that, that if you are, have a sort of a delicate mental constitution, as I do, you really need to take care of yourself or you're fucked. So I, I need to optimize for sleep. I need to get as much sleep as I can. Um, and you know, I exercise religiously. I... Try to eat well. I think having positive relationships is incredibly important.
1: Meaningful work. Um, I think having boundaries, <clears throat> understanding boundaries, yeah. uh, which I think feeds into meaningful relationships. Yes. Not enduring toxic people.
0: Yeah. I've never actually, that's not been a huge issue. I've had, I've had a few toxic relationships, but generally speaking, not been a huge issue for me. Um But running myself ragged has been an issue. And so I can't, I I mean, I have a very aggressive, ambitious schedule, but I have to be very, I'm very disciplined about working out. I do a lot of meditating. And I find time to spend time with my wife and my son, all of which I think I haven't had big, I've had a few scrapes, but I haven't had big bouts
1: of depression or anxiety in a while. So it sounds like uh, a lot of gray area and nuance and balance and all this shit that you can't really prescribe in a a silver bullet like this industry does. I want, for Christmas one year, I want a picture of Tony Robbins in the fetal position. (laughs) (laughs) That would make me so happy. I get pitched by PR people a lot, and every time somebody sends me a title of, that has the cure for nope. Delete. Peace. See ya. Delete. Yeah.
0: You know it. It. It really is. You know. It's. A, it's. You basically have to do all the th- annoying things your parents told you to do. <laughs> it's that simple. You know what? But it, like, being depressed sucks so badly. It hurts so badly. You know, the I'm I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but when that black dog when that gloom descends, it is so painful and desperate that I will do what I have to do to avoid it.
1: Yeah, that that um I'm sure you look back now at that panic t- panic attack on air as a gift.
0: Oh huge. I mean first of all I started my publishing career, so that's not <laughs> not, not nothing. Um but absolutely, yes. First of all, I would have continued doing drugs for a long time because I really liked drugs. Yeah. And had I not had that panic attack, basically I had a choice, keep doing drugs or keep your TV career. And I chose TV career. I mean, that was it was a kind of a no-brainer, but I liked drugs a lot and so it was hard to quit, you know, it was really hard. Um, and I was like the first thing I thought about when I woke up in the morning, the last thing I thought about before I went to bed, for years. I was only using hard drugs for two years. My perseveration over it lasted probably triple that. The amount of time where I just thought about it all the time, wanted it. I, it's only diminished in the last couple of years.
1: I, I think it's, it's not unlike that good golf shot, that one good golf shot where you're like, that's all you need. To bring you in. You just need that taste of how good it can be. Yes. And then all of a sudden, that's you're comparing it. Yes. Every day to that. Chasing that high. Yeah, and and then it makes sense that meditation, you would be examining how you're thinking about your day, how you're thinking about yourself and your world. You're stepping back from it and realizing that maybe there's there's some... uh, extrapolating thinking going on or catastrophizing or what what was the word that you used? Prapuncha. 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 If I have a kid, that's going to be their their name. (laughs) Prapuncha, put that down! (laughs) Um, So describe your meditation practice for us.
0: So it started, and this is what I recommend everybody start with, with just like five minutes a day. I I remember I was... At a summer house with my wife in 2009, with some friends, and right when I was really st- seriously investigating all of this stuff and reading a book by Jon Kabat-Zinn, who's a great, great it's writer great. about about meditation, and uh, he, there were some very simple instructions. Basic mindfulness meditation is very, very simple. Um, you sit quietly, try to feel your breath coming in and going out. And then when you get distracted, start again and again and again and again. Uh,
1: and tell yourself you're a piece of shit, right? When you get distracted. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> Exactly. Well, I, you're talking about yes. that was one of my great skills, telling myself I was a piece of shit. <laughs> but that's another thing you can notice. Yes. Um, and that is actually a very useful thing to notice.
1: Really useful. You get introduced to your world and personal view of yourself yes. when you Absolutely. meditate.
0: That's right. That's right. You're just peeling, as a friend of mine, as my co-author on this recent book I wrote, talk, talks about, basically you're disembedding from a thousand nested trances that we walk around in, that we don't see, these sort of layers of stories we tell ourselves, ourselves the trance of unworthiness, the trance of, um, uh, I don't know, whatever, don't all these different have, I don't trances. have
1: enough, I don't do enough, yeah, I'm that, not enough. Yes, yes, yeah.
0: insufficiency. Um So I started with, I I sneaked into a bedroom at the summer house, this shared summer house, and sat on the floor and did five, set an alarm on my Blackberry Mm -hmm. and uh, did five minutes of these basic instructions. And I remember feeling I was terrible at it, um, that I was just, you know, it was like, I think I've described it as like trying to hold a a live fish in your hands. It's just Mm -hmm. like you, you have no control over your mind. That is an incredibly important. Insight to see how fucking crazy we are mm-hmm. is incredible. This is the key insight of beginning meditation because most of us are unaware. Yes. We, we may know we're crazy in some kind of vague way, but we haven't sat and observed it in, in this very specific way that you do in meditation. And that is it's a real wake up because when you see it like that, first of all, you can't unsee it. Second of all, you have a real shot at not being owned by it. Once you see it, and that is what the exercise is all about. So at the end of those first five minutes, I felt like an abject failure, but I also knew, oh, this is this is real. This isn't
1: like hacky sack. This isn't my brain is a dog constantly pulling at the leash. Yes,
0: yes. This is, you know, this isn't just, you know, something they do outside of fish concerts. Right. This is a real exercise (laughs) for the brain. (laughs) I love that. you know, because that was my view, that this was, you know, for weirdos or just useless hippie nonsense, patchouli-smelling mm. nonsense. But no, it's not. It's actually, it is, re- these are bicep curls for your brain. You are training your brain to do a number of important things. One is to focus in our incredibly distractible age. And two is to be able to view your emotions and urges and thoughts with some non-judgmental remove. Uh, hopefully a little bit of friendliness mm-hmm. so that you, are, you can surf all that stuff instead of drowning in it. And uh, so I kept at five minutes, five to ten minutes for about a year, and then I did my first meditation retreat, which was a ten-day baton death march of all-day <laughs> long meditation, um, and came out of that and upped it to about a half hour a day. And kept doing retreats. And then about two and a half years ago, almost three years ago, I made this very radical decision to go to two hours a day. And so I've been doing that for a
1: while. And what did you notice?
0: Uh, that it's a huge pain in the ass uh, yeah. to do that much. Um, I, I don't do it all at once. My rule is I do it whenever I can, wherever I can, in whatever increments I can. Oh. So I just try to get up to two hours by the end oh, of see. every day. Uh, today's been a good day because I've been promoting this stupid book and I'm taking Uber all over LA or Lyft more specifically all over LA. And so I'm in the backseat of a car, sometimes my wife who doesn't want to talk to me anyway. So I just (laughs) put in headphones and, uh, with a little white noise to drown out the whatever radio, the, the driver's playing. And, uh, I, I was able to do a lot today. Uh, what I've noticed uh, is that, um, my practice has gotten a lot better. Um, I'm often, I'm always telling people, um, you know, don't be discouraged by the fact that you're getting distracted in meditation, that's that right. that is meditation.
1: That is meditation. Yes. It is. It, it, I just want to interject for one yes, second. Yes, um, The meditation teacher that taught me said, think of your thoughts, your mantra. Uh, that's that's what she taught me. It was Transcendental Meditation. Mm -hmm. We have a mantra that doesn't mean anything. I do. I do it every day. She said, you're going to get away from it. Think of it as your spouse that you brought to a party. Yeah, you just go and you just bring it back. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. Mm -hmm. And if it was easy, we wouldn't need to do it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So go ahead. So
0: I found that this... That it is true that for beginning meditators for for beginning meditators it is very hard to focus. It is also true for experienced meditators that it's very hard to focus, but you can get better and so over time i've realized that i'm I'm less distracted than I used to be, and I'm seeing more and more interesting things and really, the reason why I've upped the dosage well there's a crass reason and a more profound reason. the crass reason is. Uh, I have an interest eventually in writing a book about enlightenment and whether that's real, and in order to do that, I needed to up my dosage dramatically, and so it was a bit of a kind of stunt journalism thing that I was doing. But I didn't expect it to last this long. The reason why it lasted this long is, as I said before, for me, the animating insight of my entire meditation career, both publicly and personally, is that the mind is trainable, that we all the things we want calm happiness generosity compassion focus these aren't factory settings that that we're stuck with we can train these these are skills that we can train that we can take responsibility for just like we can work on our body in the gym and if it's true that you can become 10 percent happier through a couple of minutes of meditation a day where's the ceiling because training the mind is not like training the body in that the mind is not subject to the laws of physics and um I really saw the benefits of my own life of, you know, reducing my emotional reactivity, boosting my sort of generosity of spirit. Not that I am Mother Teresa. I'm not, but I'm much better than I used to be. And I thought, you know, I, I'd like to go for more of that. And what I found is upping the dosage does do that.
1: That's fantastic. And uh, it it's... Um You've hit on so many great things for the person who is skeptical of meditation. And I'd just like to add to anybody who's listened this far and is still skeptical about it, the thing that I have discovered, and I have a feeling Dan would agree as well, is that if you want to experience the feelings you've always wanted to feel in life, be willing to accept that they may come in a package you don't expect them to come in. (laughs) Be willing to get out of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. and try things Mm -hmm. that might make you roll your eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if I hadn't, I would be dead. And I have the feeling if you hadn't, you might not be dead, but your life would not be as enjoyable as it is today. That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: I'd be stuck in the... Same old unexamined... I'd be owned by the same old unexamined patterns that were operating the rest of my life. You know, I would probably be like my nasty curmudgeonly grandfather who's no longer with us, who just lived his life being mean to people and being mean to himself and was unhappy. And um, I have Robert Johnson running through my veins and...
1: That was his name?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm just glad now I have a different relationship with Robert Interestingly, in you his probably have
1: compassion for him now, right?
0: I do, I do, and and interestingly, actually, we had a very good relationship when he was alive, even though he was nasty. Because what did he do? He was a middle manager at the Yellow Pages. Um, it, the all yellow pages were it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Yeah, he was an angry man. The last decade of his life, he became a very nice man. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what sort of cognitive decline <laughs> but actually he was very sharp he discovered he got a computer when he was 80 didn't know how to type who did the hunt and pet method but got really into emailing his grandchildren he got on twitter um what yeah uh my and my wife who was only uh, only knew him during that period remembers him as like a sort of very smart kindly older gentleman but he Was the type of guy who, when I was, my brother and I were very young, he took us, he got a VCR in the 80s, early VCRs, maybe it was a Betamax, and uh, took us into the living room to show it to us and said, if you touch this, I'll break your arm.
1: (laughs) It was a Betamax then, (laughs) because those were a lot harder to replace. (laughs) Uh, Anything you'd like to uh, close with, share with uh, me or the listeners?
0: No, you know, I do a lot of interviews, man. This is a really interesting one. It was really great to talk to you. Oh well I'm very flattered. Yeah. I,
1: I appreciate that. And uh we'll put links up to uh to all your stuff. And uh thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Kinda wish uh kinda wish Dan lived in LA. He seems like a a guy that would be uh, uh nice to be friends with. He he sounds like a uh feels like a, a kindred spirit. Um if you haven't listened to the episode with uh, Luke Burbank, boy, that that guy and I—I I don't know if I've ever hit it off so instantly with um, with the guest. And Luke, if you're listening, I'm not saying this because you told me that you've been listening lately. Um, you know what? Go fuck yourself, Luke. If you think that uh, you're that I'm going to bend over that hard to please you. You know what? We're no longer friends. No, but seriously, um, I wish Luke lived uh, uh, down here in LA. I told you before that uh, we're sponsored by Squarespace. Did I? Did I not? Well, let me tell you again. Uh, support for today's show comes uh, comes from them, and Squarespace is an awesome, awesome place to build web design. Where, you know, whether it's for your business or a blog or selling products or services. They have awesome templates, a huge variety, really beautiful, professional-looking templates created by world-class designers, and it's really easy to turn whatever idea you have into a, a unique and beautiful website. Um, I I tried it because I thought, well, if, you know, if I'm going to advertise uh, their product. I want to see if it really is easy to use. And within an hour and a half, I put all of my dog pictures up there, music that I recorded, all kinds of stuff. And uh, couldn't have been simpler. If you can click, drag, and drop, you can create a beautiful website on uh, on Squarespace. So uh, check it out. I'll put the link up to my Squarespace uh, stuff. It's, uh, I believe it's paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. I could be wrong. Anyway, check it out. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. It's optimized for mobile right out of the gate. And, uh, you know, I'm going to say that. Let me close with this. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. Uh, So head to squarespace.com for a free trial And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code MENTAL. Let's get to some surveys. Uh, You know, maybe I should mention there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. Um, I could really use uh, monthly donors, especially via Patreon, because then I can give you guys freebies like uh, um, silly content that I that I make occasionally, a little mini episode here or there, and um, yeah, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, and I'll put the the link to that. That helps out because I really do depend on donations from from you guys. Uh, the advertising is not enough to to support this. This show, um, you can support us with a one-time uh, payment through PayPal. You can support us um, non-financially. Uh, oh, actually, you can support us financially by buying uh, T-shirts uh, that that we sell, um, coffee mugs that we sell through Zazzle, and you can support us non-financially by uh, spreading the word through social media. That that really helps. The more listeners we have, the more advertisers uh, pay. To advertise on the show and uh, and the more surveys we get and the more the merrier so uh, and giving us a good rating on iTunes is a a good way to raise our visibility because then we rise in the iTunes rankings and sometimes that brings new people to the show and um, oh the other thing about uh, uh, iTunes if you haven't yet already subscribe to the to the podcast because then um, you're you're downloading uh, more episodes of the show and that's good because iTunes creates their numbers uh, factored heavily by numbers of uh, people who subscribe, especially new subscribers. So, have I made you feel overwhelmed? Now go lay down. Forget everything I said. I don't mean to burden you. It's all going to be okay. I put my needs on you, and for that, I deeply apologize. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Redhead without a cause, purpose, or clue. And she writes about her sex addiction If a guy wants to fuck me, that's his problem. That is a t shirt. That is a t shirt. Uh, a snapshot from her life. Laying in bed next to my longtime wonderful boyfriend, having great conversations while carrying on an online relationship with two married men. I never feel bad about it. It's like I'm segmented into three different people. That's normal, right? Question mark. That is addiction. That is the nature of addiction. Is In fact, somebody at my support group tonight used those exact words talking about how they can have this great portion of their life and then this compartmentalized secret and there is help there is help if 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 the pain gets bad enough the wreckage gets bad enough there is help and they want to uh can you have a guest on that partakes or has an addiction to sexual online relationships well we had a a guest who was very very open about his um uh, sex addiction, Sterling Gardner, uh, and his name is spelled S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G, uh, Gardner. And that's a great episode. He's very forthcoming about his uh, his sexual uh, addictions. And there have been others, but none are coming to mind right now. I smoked a lot of weed in my day, and those parts of my brain are gone. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Invisible Doormat. And uh, she writes, When I was in high school, I was very religious. One night at the end of youth group, the pastor asked if anyone needed prayer. I was on my period and having pretty bad back cramps. Of course, I said nothing, but he noticed me rubbing my back a little and asked if I was okay. I said, I'm fine. My back just hurts a little. This happens sometimes. I I didn't want to say every month because I didn't want to announce to the whole youth group I was on my period. He proceeded to make the whole youth group gather around and lay hands on my back and lead them all in a prayer, asking God to relieve me of this ailment. The whole time, I'm devastated knowing that all the other girls in the youth group thinking, we're really praying for God to cure her of a period. Happy birthday, Paul. I hope your day is full of joy, naps, and ice cream for for thank you for those of you that follow uh, me on social media uh, on my birthday, I was driving to go get a, a a cappuccino and I saw the most amazing fucking rainbow i I you know I've seen rainbows before. But I have never seen one that looks like there should be a leprechaun at the other end of it. it. It spanned like from ground up into the sky to ground. There has to be a better way to say that. <laughs> if there was a list of 2,000 ways to describe a rainbow, mine would be 2,001. But I took a little video of it. You know what? Maybe I'll, I'll throw that on the uh, Patreon site. I always have this fear when I put stuff up on Patreon that I'm going to appear full of myself. Like, oh, look at me. Oh, here's another thing about me. This is filled out by... Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by transgirl666. And uh, she is pansexual. Uh in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, and obviously a trans female. A dark. And I just want to read a portion of this. Darkest secret. My deepest and darkest secret is when I was 11, at the time, not knowing what gender dysphoria was, but suffering from it every day uh, intensely, I grabbed the scissors, went into the bathroom, closed the door, pulled down my pants and under things, grabbed my penis and put it in the scissors and pushed down. My penis hurt like hell. I dropped the scissors and started sobbing. Giving in to my dysphoria nearly killed me. The intense shame that followed was surreal. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And then uh, she wrote this really beautiful thing. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Yes. To those trans and or gender non-conforming people out there that are struggling, not out, uh, yet uh are out and not receiving support please find somewhere a group online a group in person a trans singer like Laura Jane Grace a mental health professional a journal someone you trust to vocalize your feelings anything positive this is a cruel world and we keep losing our trans brothers and sisters and gender nonconforming folks and this world needs you you matter and to black people of color question mark i got your back um Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. The suicide rate of people um, in the trans community is alarming. It's like above 40%. And if that doesn't tell you um, a tremendous amount of how we are failing them as uh, fellow citizens, I don't know what to say. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by uh and this is in quotes nice daughter and she writes a few years ago, my husband and I were making plans for our wedding. We wanted to keep it small, casual, and fun with only our closest friends and family in attendance. My mother had offered to quote help us with the planning oh well, that's always that's always the uh the lit match. <laughs> near the gasoline, she tried to take charge of our guest list, uh, getting into arguments with me for not inviting the people she wanted. She yelled at me for not inviting her friends that I've only met on one occasion, an old neighbor I hadn't spoken to in 15 years, and an emotionally abusive boyfriend of hers whom she had broken up with several times during that summer. After continuously telling her no during a particularly heated phone call, she broke down and started crying and told me that I was ruining What was supposed to be the best day of her life. Oh my God. Oh my God. This could be in the DSM under narcissistic personality disorder. That is that is like one of the most narcissistic things I have ever fucking read. The only way that could have been worse would have been if she was combing her hair in the mirror. And taking a selfie at the same time. She would need three arms to do that. But... Wow. And she probably has no idea. She probably has no idea. And that's not to vilify her. You know, we're all sick in some way or another. Um, And it's not about measuring who's good and who's bad. It's just about trying to live a healthy, peaceful life. Uh... This is a struggle in a sentence felt out by Mr. Loser, the turd, uh, as in T-U-R-D, which begs the question, is there a Mrs. Turd in your life? About uh, his ADD. Everything I see is made up of a thousand other small things that are different from one another. I'm not sure I understand that, but it sounds deep. It sounds... It sounds like to people who experience that, that probably has to be like almost a revelation in being able to articulate it. About his anxiety, the feeling that you get before walking in a supervisor's office doesn't matter if you did anything wrong. It's your fault already. Um, About his anorexia, wish I was skinny enough to see my bones, but ripped and big like a bodybuilder. It's so funny how we attach like these magical ideas to if we could just get our body to look like such and such. I, I have never ever heard somebody say you know once I got my ripped abs all of my problems went away and I felt such a deep unshakable peace that is with me today uh about his love addiction i don't care what you're doing i want to know so i can cry over the fact that you aren't doing it with me um oh i love this one other compulsive behaviors standing up in the middle of company to go to the kitchen to just stand there alone that is oh my god yes yes That is like I think I said this on the podcast before but like the best Christmas present any year ever was the silence after people left it's I hate to say it um, about PTSD uh, everyone wanting to go back home for a family vacation but no one else seeing it through my eyes a trap a hole of despair no way out no way to cope Mm. man, nothing will trigger you like a, a dysfunctional family get together There should be an Airbnb b and b for dysfunctional families. Here's a picture of the the yelling hallway uh it's very reverberant. All the rooms will hear your grievances. You won't have to repeat anything uh as you can see, there's a beautiful martyr chair uh it can also be used to sit in and uh, give up um You can see that there's a stocked bar, that's obvious. And we also have a dissociation nook, uh, which is nice because you won't wander off. Thank you for sharing that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by single with regrets but learning to be happy now. And she is straight in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, My brother used to make me touch him and he used to touch me. My mom never caught on and he told me his friend did it to his sister and it was normal. This went on during one summer only and I eventually got upset and wouldn't do it anymore. Um, Have you ever been emotionally or physically abused? My boyfriend through my late teens and early 20s used to shame me about my weight and looks. Always told me I would never get any better than him if he if I ever left. He sounds like a keeper. He was a drug abuser and an alcoholic. He never physically abused me, but I was scared he would. He found out he was sexually abused as a child. I found out he was sexually abused as a child. Later in our relationship, he was arrested for peeping in women's windows. That was the final straw. He wouldn't get help for his child trauma uh, as he thought if he talked about it, it would make him gay. Wow. If you don't think that there is a problem with emotional ignorance in this country, I mean that, the world really, because I would imagine you go to any country and people are going to, there's going to be a group of people that would, oh yeah, of course it does. Makes you queer right out of the gate. Uh, any positive experiences with any of the abusers. The emotional abuse made me a stronger person today. I wouldn't be the determined person I am now if I had not endured some of his torture. It made me me to get a place where I no longer cared what people thought and would have been quite happy to go it alone rather than be with someone like him. Darkest thoughts. I think about ramming my car into a tree with my children in it when they uh, get me stressed out. Sometimes it's too much to handle on my own. I'm a single mother and would never hurt a hair on their head, but thinking these things somehow gets me over the hump. You know, to which I say, good for you. Um, There, there are no wrong feelings or thoughts, just healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them. And as a matter of fact, I was talking to a friend today who is a, a new parent and is feeling totally... Uh, stressed out and overwhelmed and um was feeling guilty that they started feeling anger at their their kid and but they they didn't express it they just felt it and i was like why are you shaming yourself for what is a completely human response that's a logical response um What, if anything, what would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to ask my mom why she treated me so unfairly as a child, but she will never admit she did. And you know what? Good for you for knowing that, for having that clarity, because nothing re-traumatizes people or just rips that wound open, like going back to the dry well, hoping this time there's going to be water. And as painful as that is, you know, it's it's um, it can save your sanity. Thank you for sharing all that stuff. Uh, Rachel writes about her uh, ADD. How much dust should accumulate on this new quote hobby before I bring it down into storage with the rest of them? Rachel, you have no idea how much I fucking laughed at that. You should see some of the garage sales that I had when I was like at my worst. You could see like the phases of me trying to distract myself from my pain. And my friends would kid me about it. But until you have had a garage sale of your hypomanic wreckage... Oh my God. Oh my God. About her anxiety. They all know who I really am. About her sex addiction. I used to be a quote slut. Now I am a quote prude. I am broken. No. Those are the two poles that sexual trauma survivors often vacillate between. Is promiscuity and then being sexually anorexic and shutting down and oftentimes swinging back and forth between the two. so do not do not blame yourself. Um, snapshot from her life I'm so tired and I want to lay down but instead of relaxing I get pissed off because I should be doing something more productive. Now I have lashed out at my husband for no reason and ruined the entire day. I know I am sounded like Mr. Fucking Silver Lining, uh, Gladiola's shooting out of my ass, but there's a chance you didn't ruin the entire day. And that sounds to me like, you know, like black and white thinking, which is where a lot of us just automatically go. You know, we start using the word always and never. And apologizing to your husband might be a chance for you two to communicate, maybe even have a moment of closeness that repairs parts of your relationship and ultimately brings you closer together. But beating yourself up and shaming yourself will not mold you into the person you want to be. This is an awfulsome moment shared by that weird girl openly crying in the middle of a Starbucks. I think I know her. I recently saw my therapist for the first time after Christmas and when she asked me how the holiday went, uh, I've been worried sick about it. I said, actually, pretty good. Like, maybe the best Christmas I've ever had. Uh, and then in parentheses, note a lack of enthusiasm. She said, that's fantastic. What made it so good? And I was like, well, there wasn't like any screaming. She got this kind of weird look on her face and asked, is there usually? And I said, oh, yeah, a lot. This was a great Christmas. Christmas because it was just sort of, you know, wasn't disappointing. And then I realized how fucking sad that was and we both just sat quietly thinking about it for a minute. Oh, I bet so many people relate to that. Yeah. Next year for Christmas, I would like a framed picture of Tony Robbins in the fetal position. It's not nice, but it would bring me comfort to know that Very high-achieving people are in pain while I'm sleeping away parts of my life. Willow shares about having PTSD. I'm totally over it, I say from my isolated apartment where nothing can hurt me. Oh, that's so fantastic. Um... And in this horrible fucking snapshot from her life, I was gang-raped as a young teenager, and after years of keeping it a secret, I finally mentioned what happened when talking to an older male friend. He didn't believe me, and despite having never met my attackers, he was adamant that I must have consented and just regretted it. I still have scars from from the attack. That That is just jaw-dropping that somebody could be that fucking ignorant. You know, I would love to know what kind of personal issue he is filtering this through. Um, But part of me wants him to have... (laughs) This is so awful. Part of me wants him to lose a parent to cancer so that you can send a card that says... I'm so sorry your loved one died from the cancer they wanted. I should go back and delete that. Nope, I'm not. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Screwy Stewie. And he is... Bisexual in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. When I was a kiddo, like before kindergarten, my cousin and I would perform oral sex on one another. Later on, she would play games with my cousin and I, and, quote, playing bar usually meant playing sex worker and John. Also, I remember taking showers with my dad and grandpa. I don't remember anything happening, only that it seemed weird, and I'm not sure if my grandma or mom did the same with my sister um yeah something i mean kids playing sex worker in john uh at that age is fucking red flag city uh he's been emotionally abused i had a girlfriend that drove me to the brink of insanity with her gaslighting oddly enough i still have feelings for her uh any positive experience uh, with any of the abusers. I had a great childhood playing in the woods and learning from my dad and grandpa the value of hard work and sweat. Darkest thoughts. I want to hunt, kidnap, bind, and fuck women who I feel would never have the chance I would never have the chance to be with. Um, darkest, and and may I remind you, it's his darkest thought and uh, now I feel like I'm being patronizing, but Um, If we could be arrested for our thoughts, most of us would be in jail. Uh, It's what we do that matters. Deepest, darkest secrets. The darkest thing I've done is putting someone's phone number and revealing photos on a dating website to get revenge on a woman who lied to me for four months. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize... Uh, of women throwing themselves at me while their husbands are away old young all of them i believe it stems from a woman uh choosing me over her uh, significant other for pleasure Uh, i want to steal a woman away from another man what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to to my detriment i always air my grievances um you know, it's not always a bad thing necessarily, but it's how we do it that makes a huge difference. You know, and in all the support groups and stuff that I mentioned, one of the biggest tools that I've learned is how to have difficult conversations with people um, and have them with compassion, tact, and, and without being um, apologetic about it. And that's, to me, the, the sign of becoming an adult. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for someone to love me and want me the way I've loved and wanted others? Um, Have you shared these things with others? I've shared with a few friends, but it gets too dark and heavy for most of them. I think a support group might be a good place uh, for you to connect with people that share similar feelings or thoughts or desire to change. Change. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, get a cat or a dog. Those guys will always love you unconditionally. I couldn't agree more. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by supernova consciousness. And she writes, a few months ago, I was lying in bed after having a terrible bout of mono and a shitty year at school where I barely got anything done. I'd been trying to grapple with my parents as fast as I could so that I could return, uh, grapple with my problems is a Freudian slip ball, uh, so I could return to work and my thoughts turned to my boss. After writing for a few hours, I realized that he was setting off all kinds of triggers related to my mother, who was and still is abusive to me. It was terrible recognizing that I had probably been struggling for the past year because of this constant mashing of my trigger buttons, but I felt so much better that it wasn't some kind of moral failure. I finally had my answer. I walked into work the next week and announced that I was beginning the process of organizing a medical leave of absence. I haven't regretted the decision at all. Man, that is that is so awesome. I love... I love seeing people grow and advocate for themselves. It is like one of the greatest discoveries in becoming healthier. Uh, this is an awful awesome moment filled out by Hello Goodbye Polar. And. She writes, I decided to apply for life insurance for the first time this year. On the application, I was honest about my mental illnesses, bipolar and anorexia, but I stretched the truth a bit concerning my past as a cigarette smoker. The entire time I was waiting for the acceptance or denial letter to arrive from the insurance company, I was stressing out that I'd be denied for being dishonest. When the letter finally arrived, I read that I had indeed been denied, but not for my smoking history for having bipolar disorder. Well, I said aloud to my boyfriend, at least I wasn't denied for being a liar. That's a relief. We have become so asleep in this country at accepting crumbs from our government. It is that we still allow a system to profit from people's sickness is unbelievable to me it used to be that that um companies couldn't profit uh from people's health and nixon changed that uh he was lobbied by uh kaiser of uh kaiser permanente uh fame and since then it has become about money and exploiting the numbers. You know, it would be great to see in the Olympics when they do the opening ceremonies and everybody has representatives, you know, the athletes come out and one person is always holding a torch from that that country. Um, I think they're holding a torch, aren't they? They're holding something. Oh, no, they're holding the flag for that country. Um, And then another person puts a torch to it. Uh so they're holding the flag and there's usually some story that the announcers say about the person walking with the flag at the front of the pack of athletes. It would be great if legally every country had to have somebody who represented what was most fucked up about that country. It would just be and it, it could just be like printed on the back of their track suit. Just to see somebody coming out with the United States. Oh, let's see what we got this year. Oh, it looks like uh, Jane can't afford her cancer treatments. Now, the next next country up, it uh, looks like that person was jailed for being gay. Think about that next time before you vacation and uh, wherever. Oh, and now here comes, here comes, uh, what does it say? had my husband chosen for me. All right, two sentences left. Sentences, surveys, survey in a sentence. Yeah, I think I'm getting drowsy. That guy writes about his bipolar like being late and stuck in traffic or being so early you have nothing to do all of the time. That is a great one. About his anxiety. Like the constant feeling of knocking over an expensive vase in an antique shop and watching it loudly smash. uh, Compulsive behaviors. Harsh self-criticism. Like watching a film where the narrator points out everything wrong with the movie. Oh, those those are amazing. Those are amazing. Um... And this is going to be the, uh, the last one. This is um, a happy moment filled out by Annie Get Your Phone. And she writes, I tend to call myself dramatic and an imposter after my panic attacks. One of the habits I'm working on in therapy... Today, post-panic attack, I opened my Notes app on my iPhone, randomly scrolled to an old document to bury my thoughts in, and found someone had left me a message in a document dated from a year ago. It said, no matter how upset and angry and childish you feel right now, you deserve self-love. You deserve to understand that none of this is your fault and you can do whatever it takes to be happy. Be proud of yourself for making that phone call to a therapist. Be proud of yourself for showing up every time. Be proud for researching and learning to gain insight about yourself and how you can finally move on. You're intelligent, a great listener, a loyal friend, a loving human. You care about everyone, and even when that's taken advantage of, it is not a bad thing to care and love. You are not responsible for the actions of others, and you can't change people. You can influence quietly, But never feel guilty for others' choices. Work on yourself for you, because you deserve to be happy. Love yourself. The positivity feels so foreign in this moment. I was sure a stranger had somehow found my phone and written this. But it's a message I left for myself for exactly this kind of day. Therapy must be working because in the after-effects of a panic attack littered with shame and guilt, it's hard to feel loved. But here I am feeling loved by none other than me from a year ago. Oh, thank you. You guys never disappoint with having a survey that leads into the opening montage of the show or to go out on. Never. It never fails. Um, thank you so much for... Uh, being a part of the show you guys that fill out the surveys you guys that uh, donate to the show those of you that that uh, tell your friends about it or you write a review on iTunes or whatever it is, or you just you you utilize the show and it helps improve the quality of your life and that's that's awesome um anyway I'm going to start running my mouth at some point and then it's going to get to the butthole of Herbert's ghost and that is, uh, we don't need to go there. There might be new listeners and that's just way too much to try to catch them up on. So just remember, you're not alone and you never have been. You never have to be. And connecting to people and finding Safe people to open up to is one of the greatest experiences of being a human being, other than playing hockey. And thank you for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody fucked up in I know, weird is, way. Bizarrely Everybody I know weird is bizarrely way. beautifully, fucked, weird is bizarrely way. beautifully fucked up in some
1: weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.